he said mainly those deals are sellers who are looking to grow, get rid of the administration and compliance, you know, back in middle office stuff, rather than for exit of succession. So that was very consistent with what Dave DeVoe had said the day before. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales and marketing and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to small deals that you can do even without significant capital. Today is the uh, second of the episodes that I recorded from the uh, DeVoe and Company um, M&A and Succession Summit at the Harvard Club, or more accurately, recorded it from my hotel room in the evening um, because uh, the Harvard Club doesn't allow recording. But, uh, but, you know, fr- but from, from the summit, uh, the first one, uh, which we previously uh, released, uh, summarized day one of the conference, and uh, this uh, podcast will summarize day two of the conference. As I said in the first one, I mean, this is a day and a half uh, phenomenal conference packed with information from some of the top luminaries in the industry. So uh, this summary couldn't possibly uh, do it justice. And I certainly encourage you to attend uh, Dave's next one, which will likely be roughly a year from now, probably on the West Coast in San Francisco, he said. So, you know, and of course, you cannot replace all the connections you make there and the wonderful people that you meet, the clients I saw while I was there, the, the new people I met, et cetera. But I want to give you a feel for it. And I want to give, you know, Dave a shout out and his team. They put on a great conference. Um, so day two started with Dave Barton from Mercer Advisors uh, as, the, uh, uh, as the keynote, although really it was actually more of an interview um, with Dave. And, um, you know, Dave has... Um, uh, came up sort of in Mercer Advisors and held a number of different positions, uh, general counsel originally, and you know, and, and eventually become the CEO. And you know, if you don't know Mercer, anybody in the industry probably knows Mercer. They, you, you know, you may uh, know that they're growing very quickly. They've done a number of deals. So, you know, he, he gave some interesting insight, not only into uh, Mercer and their model, but also, uh, you know, into what's going on uh, in M&A generally and in the industry. A few of the major points that, uh, that Dave pointed out uh, was, you know, in discussing scale, um, he talked about the fact that in this day and age, in the RIA space, you need to provide something beyond extra services, something beyond investment advice and financial planning. You know, basically, those services are becoming more and more commoditized. It's hard to distinguish yourself. And if you want to have a value proposition that helps you go grow um, uh, organically, uh, you need to provide some other things. And these things also uh, make Mercer, in his mind, you know, attractive. And, and frankly, through the number of deals they, they've done, it shows uh, attractive to other advisors coming on because the advisors that join them get the benefit of these extra suite of services that make them more distinguishable in the, in the marketplace. So some of the other things Mercer provides are, for example, they have in-house trust estates uh, services, you know, with in-house attorneys. Uh, another example is they, they do tax prep. Um, so these are two of the examples. There's other things that they do that uh, try to create a more uh, rounded offering, uh, you know, with some additional services that are beyond the, just the traditional investment advice and financial planning services that um, 
make Mercer more attractive to both clients and to advisors who may join their platform, uh, join their company. Um, so, and now when they do join in Mercer, they become um, employees. That's the, that, you know, that's the model. Um, uh, I think, I think he did say that there's, um, I believe, and this may be wrong. So you can check this. Uh, but I think there is some class of, uh, of equity or, or some, that they get, or at least some profit share, or some way they benefit from the from the growth of the firm. But 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 they come in as employees. Um, he believes, like a lot of the other speakers at the at the conference, that there will be some very large firms and and you know a bunch of very small firms, it's similar to what Dave DeVoe said. Uh, I mentioned in the last podcast where you know there won't be this consolidation down to very few firms, but there will be uh, a number of very large firms, a small number, uh, and then uh, you know maybe and David said twenty five thirty, uh, and then you know a bunch of, of smaller firms. So there'll be consolidation at the bigger end. Um, Mercer's done twenty one deals in three years. I mean that's pretty impressive. He had a chart of all the deals they've done. They raised in size. Some of them were small, under hundred million. Uh, some of them were very large. They did a very big deal that I think was a billion and change. Um, and he said mainly those deals are um, sellers who are looking to grow, get rid of the administration and compliance, you know, back in middle office stuff, rather than for exit of succession. So. That was very consistent with what Dave DeVoe had said the day before, where his study, you know, and he, he does this uh, DeVoe Nuveen um, quarterly report on, um, uh, on the deals in the industry, which you should definitely go on Dave's website and subscribe to. Um, and, you know, his stats were showing the same thing, that there are more and more deals being done for growth uh, purposes with people who have, who have, you know, a long run, longer runway in their career left than, you know, for exit. And that's certainly the types of deals that uh, Mercer uh, said, you know, they've been doing. I mean, um, uh, Dave Bart mentioned there was one deal, you know, where the advisor, you know, was ill and knew that we had a terminal illness was going to pass away. So, you know, he's done one or two like that. But I think he said, you know, 19 or 20 of the 21 deals were really for growth. Um, one of the key things he talked about, you know, in terms of how they evaluate deals, he went through a lot of stuff. But one of the things he super stressed, his biggest one was in due diligence, look at client attrition rates, right? If you're not looking at, I mean, it's great to look at whatever they happen to have now, but if you don't look at historical client attrition rates, in you know, Dave's view, I think that was Dave Barton's view, that I think that was the, you know, like a lead <laughs> major indicator that there may be other problems in the firm that are harder for you to figure out in due diligence if there's client attrition. And that totally makes sense. And I agree with it. Um, the other comment he made, which is interesting, because, you know, everybody talks about this cultural alignment, cultural fit, or as Tabergian said, I mentioned in the last, additions to culture, however you want to look at it. Um, the, um, you know, what he said is, listen, even if the technology systems are the same, because, because people on that platform have to adopt um, the Mercer technology systems. They're not a platform where people can use whatever they want to use. They have to integrate into the systems of Mercer. He said, even if that's said, and even if there is a great uh, cultural alignment, uh, integration is hard. Like he was straight up. He said, listen, integration is hard. You got to be prepared. Um, it's challenging. Uh, but you know, uh, the good firms work together and they, and they get through it. But I think he was, you know, trying to be realistic and set, and set up an expectation for the people in the room that they do a deal. Even if everything else looks like it's going to really fit well, culturally, technology wise, whatever, don't have this unrealistic expectation. That's going to be simple and integrate everything. It, it takes a body of work. Um, Following that was a uh, another talk by Dave DeVoe on blind spots that can destroy your firm. And again, while Dave listed a bunch of them, there's a, a couple I'll point out. Uh, one is um, 
uh, you know, the, the, uh, the blind spot would be the failure of a lot of firms not to project out, not to think in advance of um, uh, their, uh, the equity sales by the senior partners. So in other words, as the senior partners of the firm start to wind down, um, there can be what he calls a, a share buyback uh, uh, time bomb uh, if, if things go wrong, uh, you know, where, where things can go wrong. So in other words, the company has an obligation to buy back shares from the older uh, retiring or um, uh, partners or the, or the ones who are reducing their, their, their uh, role. And if that is not planned out well in advance in time, that could be a huge cash flow crunch on the company, especially if one or two or three of those partners end up um, retiring together or, or, you know, are entitled to buyouts uh, together. So he strongly recommends, this is, you know, one big takeaway to project out the timeline of equity sales by the senior partners, um, you know, and, and what the value is likely to be at each time under the uh, applicable agreements and figure out in advance whether the junior people can afford to buy it, right? Because that's something that happens. You assume that they can, maybe they can't. So you want to find that out in advance, um, you know, off ongoing, uh, you know, basically you need to take uh, – not only the firm valuation now, but you got to pre- project out what the growth in, uh, of the firm, the growth in valuation is going to be at that time. Because when you sell later, it's very likely that the valuation um, uh, cutoff date, you know, is going to be different. So you got to anticipate what it's going to be then, and you got to roll up your sleeves now and do the math and project it over time. And the, this, you know, four key economic factors: uh, your valuation, uh, or, or, or four key factors: your valuation, the economic deal structure the exit timeline, and the buying power of the next generation. So you want to think about all of those things in advance, not to end up in the situation where you have not properly anticipated things, whether it's a time bomb uh, of buyout requirements, or we just end up not being able to affect what you intend to affect because um, the money's too much for the junior people, for example. Um, Dave also talked about something uh, uh, which he then uh, kind, kindly called on me to comment on as well, uh, which was regarding uh, buyouts of um, you know, provisions uh, where you, you, have, you have people in your firm uh, that you have an obligation to buy out uh, if they leave, and then they, they surprise you and, and they leave, right? You don't anticipate them leaving. You have this plan, and then suddenly somebody leaves to go to another firm, start their own firm, whatever it is. And if your agreements aren't drafted right, Dave uh, shared a, a um, example that he came, a real life example that he came across where um, the firm, the way that the agreement was drafted, um, the people uh, who were leaving were, uh, were um, uh, owned 30% of the equity and were needed to be bought out in that agreement at two times revenue, which is not a valuation methodology you often want to use. But, uh, and then they actually controlled 40% of the business, took 40% of the business with them, and there was no adjustment for the amount of business they took out of the firm. So the firm lost 40% of the business, plus had to pay them 30% of the value of the firm under the agreement, and not only did that cause significant cash flow issues for the firm, but in the math that he showed, it actually reduced the, the value of the firm by a third. It went down to from being worth $9 million to $3 million because of the hit it took, uh, which is the point at which Dave uh, reached out to me for my input. I've seen that kind of thing as well. And, you know, uh, obviously, you got to uh, pick the right valuation methodologies. But clearly, 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 you got to make sure your agreements have an offset provision that offsets uh, the, uh, against the obligation to pay any money the amount of business that the that the firms are taking out if you allow them to, or 
has the proper kind of restrictive covenants, right? Non-solicits uh, and things like that, which that in Dave's example that he gave uh, that firm didn't have, that restricts the ability to solicit those, solicit those clients. Now, the other thing, you know, that I'll throw in there is that of course you have to make an evaluation on a state-by-state basis of whether if you're going to go that route and have non-solicits, they're going to be enforceable. Certainly if you are in California, they're less likely to be, although with owners with a payout, it might be possible. But I don't want to give specific advice here. I'm just saying state by state. Watch out, California, toughest place to enforce non-solicits. But even in other states, you want to really make sure those are enforceable if that's the route you're going to go. Uh, and even then, if they violate the non-solicit, you want an offset you know, provision against the money that uh, they're entitled to. And certainly in a situation where you don't have non-solicit, chat, you better have that offset. So, um, so that was a, a, a great point by Dave, and uh, you know, and 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 he gave me the opportunity to weigh in on that to to give some warnings and and, and advice to the audience on that point. Uh, following that was a a panel, uh, another phenomenal panel with uh, um, it was on uh, basically it was lessons from the experts. Seasoned acquirers share their M and A experience, and um, Dave had uh, Elliot Weisbluth, who was the founder and chairman of Hightower, Matt Cooper, who's a partner and president of Beacon Point Wealth Advisors, and Marty Bicknell. Um, who is the president and CEO of Mariner Wealth Advisors? And you know, for the for anybody in his in the industry, you know, those are three firms uh, that have uh, you know grown significantly. They all have different models, um, and uh, and it was interesting to hear uh, their experiences, their views on the deal. And again, I'll just give you a few points that I happen to jot down. Um, Elliot Weisbluth made a, a, a very strong uh, and impassioned pitch for somebody to create an institute to train firm successors. He, he, he stressed what a major gap, and most of us in the industry know there's this major gap um, of people coming into the industry who were trained up and, and in a position to be able to take firms over as the uh, owners of firms uh, age and now uh, you know they uh, various people are talking about how the average owner of a firm is up to something like sixty three the average um, advisor is in the late fifties but the average owner is in the sixties now um, so you know it 's big gap and Elliot really made an impassioned plea and he thinks it 's actually a huge uh, entrepreneurial opportunity for somebody to come in and train successors uh, you know to fill those gaps um, now uh, Marty Bicknell did mention that um, that um, his firm, um, Mariner Wealth, does do some of that, and they have a program where they train people up. Um, but you know, and I'm and, and I'm just I'm wondering out loud here, and I'm gonna I'll tag him. Hey, uh, Phil Buchanan who was uh, you know on an earlier podcast runs Canon um, Financial, which is a training company in the space. And uh, Phil and I had breakfast lately. I'm just gonna throw it out, Phil. Hey, maybe maybe you want to get together with Elliot, and uh, you know, you guys do a huge amount of great training in the space, and. Maybe this is an area where you can get more involved. Elliot actually said he would partner with that on anybody who's interested in doing it. So, hey, maybe I'm, uh, uh, you know, no pressure here, but maybe I'll throw out an idea for, uh, for anybody who wants to do it. And uh, Phil, maybe, maybe if you have this, uh, you'll give Elliot a call. In any case, um, uh, so that was, uh, you know, big pitch by Elliot was interesting. Um, Matt Cooper um, was talking about, um, some of the things that he, you know, when he looks at deals and they've done, done a number of deals, um, what he looks at that are sort of things that scare him away. Um, and he said, when, when you're doing due diligence meeting with somebody who's a seller of a firm and they, you keep hearing them say, yes, I agree with you, but yes, I agree with you, but 
he says, walk away <laughs> because, um, because if there's too many butts in there, not that people can't have different opinions, but it was just sort of that phrasing uh, in his experiences triggered something for him where there always, there's always a but. It's, it's, it's a, um, uh, it's a uh, trigger for him to say, mm, maybe not the right deal for me. Um, he also uh, said that the minute a seller claims they can differentiate based upon investments, that they're out. Meaning, you know, somebody says, oh, I have, you know, a special, you know, investment philosophy or model or whatever. Uh, you know, he said, he said they're out uh, because he's, you know, I, I think that sort of goes along with the view of a lot of people uh, that I mentioned at, at the um, at the conference, uh, you know, where if you're trying to distinguish yourself on returns or investment approach or, or et cetera, that, you know, that's not really realistic. You, you know, you need to do other things. So that's a red flag for him. Um, you know, he was talking about uh, also on average that firms below five billion in AUM are not growing, excluding market gains, and that raises concerns on what happens when there's a downturn in the market. Um, now, uh, when Bryce uh, uh, had presented from uh, DFA, who I mentioned on the on the last episode, the first day of the uh, of the of the um, conference, um, he had he had uh, talked about growth rates being a lot higher for larger firms, but he had shown some growth for the smaller firms. And there was some, you know, theorizing that the DFA firms might, uh, you know, have a higher growth rate um, that, than other firms. But um, Matt feels like uh, your average firm, and he has, you know, some statistics to back it up, is actually not growing. And, and you know, and if that's the case, if, you, if you're only growing because, of, uh, because the market's been growing, well, then there is reason to be concerned because that's not going to go on forever. And, you know, what, what's going to happen when there is a downturn? So he raised that, and I think that's a legitimate concern we all need to think about. Um, Marty Bicknell, um, one of the most important uh, points he uh, talked about is, in, you know, in, in getting ready for a deal, is to decide what you don't want, basically what your non-negotiables are. For me, what he was really talking about is what I talk about in my authentic negotiating book, my first uh, point in the three steps of CDE, uh, clarity, detachment, equilibrium is clarity. What he was really talking about there is get clear. Exactly will n- what won't work for you. What, is, you know, what will, will cause you not to do a deal? What are your non-negotiables? Um, you know, I always say you should do that and also get clear on exactly what will work for you, uh, which is just the other side of the coin of that. Um, So Marty was definitely uh, stressing that. All of the panelists agreed that we're still very early in the RA industry in the cycle, and there's still a huge amount of opportunity. Anybody who thinks it's later in the game, you know, it's really, really where somewhere in the early innings uh, in terms of the maturation of the industry and the opportunities that are going to continue to grow in the industry. And I happen to agree with that. Um, they each had a, a different capital structure, so that's interesting, right? You have three very successful firms. You've got um, High Tower, which ha- which is venture capital backed and 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 majority owned uh, at this point. You have um, um, a big and point, which uh, there are uh, uh, several partners. I forget the exact number. Matt has some partners, and they all own uh, five or seven of them, if I remember right. And they, you know, they, they, they and they own uh, the company. And then you have um, uh, Marty uh, Bicknell who is 100% owner of Marina Wealth, uh, and he uses a phantom equity uh, program. So that's uh, you know, synthetic equity. It's uh, contractual um, vehicles that act like equity, but aren't true equity to incentivize uh, you know, his, his people. So um, each firm has been successful with a different model. 
Um, so, you know, that's not surprising to me because I uh, helped design a lot, a number of the platforms and, and firms in the space and done whiteboarding sessions. And I'm pretty familiar with almost all of the, you know, uh, firms out there and, and certainly, uh, you know, all the different options on structures. And, um, but, you know, but it was interesting to see that you had three uh, successful players on the stage who had all very different uh, capital structures. Uh, and equity structures. Uh, following that, the final presentation, other than you know Dave closing us out and saying goodbye, was from um, um, Tim Coaches, who's the uh, special advisor to Devon Company, who had been on an earlier panel, and he would you know he reiterated some of the things uh, that w were said from others, but and some of the points that he uh, those stressed, which are which were in addition, was to really distinguish the difference between um, uh, you know as you grow between. Uh, the conversations of equity ownership uh, versus management, right? So just because you change the percentage of equity, or let's say you have less than 51% of the, or less than 50% of the equity at some point doesn't mean you need to lose control. And in terms of a strategy and thinking about growth of the company, he's a huge fan of giving out uh, true equity uh, to people early uh, and growing and having a lot of people. I mean, his firm would, you know, he, 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 he created a very, very successful firm and they had a lot of equity owners. Obviously they were majority owners and, you know, and then they were people at smaller pieces, but he really believes investing people in, in equity. And he talks about the fact that the equity transition is easier than the control transition, right? You don't have to worry about, I mean, you know, you, you can do something different with control and people don't only always understand that those two things don't have to go together, which is of, of course a great point. Um, he also talked about how, though, tenure as an ownership criteria is a mistake. He said, you know, some people are rock stars. They come in. I mean, some people potentially deserve uh, equity, you know, in, in a couple of years, where some, you know, much later, um, some never. And also, some people deserve equity even, you know, to attract the right people from the day they come in. So he's, he doesn't think tenure should be by criteria, really contribution to the firm. I then asked him a question because it was interesting to me and I've used synthetic equity as a good solution for some clients. And of course, I mentioned already that Marty Bicknell on the prior paddle, that's his method. Uh, he keeps 100% control of his firm and incentivizes people through phantom equity plan. So I wanted to see uh, Tim's view on it. I mean, he had sort of queued it up in a way where I thought I knew his answer, but I, you know, I, I asked him the question, um, which, uh, you know, and I wanted the audience to be able to see that there's uh, differences in views. And Tim straight out said he doesn't like synthetic equity, you know, he doesn't like it, he doesn't recommend it. Of course, it's not as tax advantaged uh, because it's ordinary income to the uh, people who have the, uh, the synthetic equity, like, like uh, a stock appreciation right or equity appreciation right or phantom equity or phantom stock, um, which is true. You know, it's, a, it's, it's essentially deferred comp uh, under the tax laws, and it's, uh, it's um, a tax to ordinary income to the, uh, uh, to the employee, the executive, um, whereas, cap, you know, if, if they own true equity, it's capital gains. Now, listen, I think there are some counterbalancing points to that. I think it depends upon what your model is. I mean, first of all, you can always gross up the amount to cover the tax difference um, uh, because you do to get a deduction uh, for the comp uh, expense and on the company side. So because you're getting that deduction, you can uh, gross up the amount to make up the tax difference to the, um, um, to the phantom equity holder. Also, you know, there are some, when you give real equity, um, there, it is more complex in terms of being able to buy, buy it back, get it back if somebody leaves, that kind of stuff. I think there are arguments on both sides. And I think it really depends upon the, the particular firm. That's part of what we advise on. But, you know, it was interesting to see 
you have one very successful person in the industry, Marty Bicknell, who uh, uses that and, and has grown his firm that way and has not given any true equity to anybody. And then you have uh, Tim, who, you know, built a very, very successful firm, having a lot of people, you know, have equity. And he's a strong believer in that model. Um, you know, and I've seen both uh, other examples where both models have worked. Um, so, you know, that was all the stuff that happened officially at, at, at the summit. Uh, as you can tell, I, I mean, keeping in mind that I, I couldn't possibly do justice um, all the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, through this, uh, these two little podcasts on all the great information that was supplied at the conference. But I think you can get a feel, uh, uh, you know, from just what I've shared and how rich it was and how phenomenal it was. And that was obviously from the people on stage. Now, um, you know, what at a lot of these conferences and the main reason a lot of us go, because frankly, for me, I'm not saying it wasn't informative, it was interesting. I always want to see what other people think and where the trends go, you know, but, but I live and die this stuff. I mean, I'm in this every single day. I speak to these people, a lot of these people who, you know, who are on stage offline uh, anyway. And, uh, you know, I study what's going on in the industry and I do a huge number of deals. So, you know, information-wise, uh, I think there was a lot new for a lot of people in the room and a lot that was reinforced. And for me, uh, you know, I certainly got value there. But, you know, for the most part, I know what's going on already. So, um, you know, the other value that I and a lot of people get is, you know, is in the hallways and at dinner and at, uh, and at drinks and, you know, and at breaks and spending time and meeting uh, some, some, some great people, which I did, uh, you know, definitely established some really good uh, new relationships, got to see some of my existing clients, as I said earlier. And, you know, it was just really also an enjoyable time with a lot of really smart, um, people in the RA industry, committed people, um, to, uh, you know, to their clients and to the field and to the fiduciary standard and to, uh, the independence movement. And, you know, that's always great to be in that environment, um, with, uh, with, with a bunch of really, uh, smart folks who have, uh, views that are aligned, uh, with yours and are committed to, um, you know, to, to the same thing and to growing their, their firms and, uh, providing additional benefit and value to their clients by expanding their offerings and, and by, you know, having, um, people who could take over for them and also, uh, you know, uh, uh, by um, learning about the different opportunities to provide value to uh, not only the clients, but opportunities for the people to grow within their firms and all the other things that they learn. So I appreciate them taking the time out and spending time uh, in this environment to learn more about M&A and succession. Um, and, you know, and I want to give a big shout out to Dave DeVoe and his entire team at DeVoe and Company, who have been a great partner of ours. Uh, you know, I've known Dave since his Schwab days. We used to do talks together at for Schwab and at other conferences. And uh, then when he left and uh, to form uh, DeVoe and Company, uh, he's been a great partner of, uh, uh, of mine. And, you know, we, we've, we've done a lot together. And, you know, and uh, he was kind enough to be the first guest on, on the Fueling Deals podcast. Um, and it, they really put on a quality show. So like I said, uh, listen, definitely check out the DeVoe M&A and Succession Summit uh, when he runs it again next year, likely in San Francisco, he said. Uh, you know, I am certainly uh, planning on being there, barring some crazy, you know, uh, uh, conflict of dates or something, but it's going to be a priority for me. Um, and, you know, and definitely listen, uh, check out, uh, check out uh, DeVoe and company, check out his um, quarterly uh, deal uh, of forecast, not, not deal, but uh, deal summary that he, that he sends out um, with Naveen. Uh, and, uh, you know, obviously, uh, if you have any questions uh, uh, on anything, feel free to reach out to us. 
we'd, uh, we'd love to help you, even if it's just to give you a landscape of the industry and what's going on. I love doing deals. I love helping companies grow. Uh, and I know Dave's the same way, which is, uh, you know, why we, uh, uh, we end up doing a lot of work together. So um, thanks, Dave DeVoe and team. Appreciate uh, being at the summit. Um, glad to um, have uh, met the people and learned what I learned and uh, given the opportunity to uh, summarize it for the Fueling Deals podcast listeners. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't, and it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor, other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at FuelingDeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.